Welcome to another In Between episode. Today I had the pleasure of speaking with Josh Kaufman, the president of the recently launched Nexus Development Capital Fund. And now, on to the show. Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because, after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Josh Kaufman to the show. Josh is currently the president of Nexus Dev, a platform investing development capital in renewable and circular economy projects. Previously, he was an energy investor at the Australian fund QIC, and prior to that, he was on the GE Power M&A team. Josh has a BA in math and economics from Williams College. Josh, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Raj. How are you? Josh, I'm doing fantastic. Thank you for asking. Josh, where are you currently located? I'm in Sarasota, Florida right now. And how's the weather in Sarasota, Florida? It's pretty nice, I think. I mean, we're still kind of quarantining as usual. Most of the days are sitting in front of the computer, but at least there's more sun outside the windows, which definitely makes an impact on my mood. You know, I'm hearing that Florida is kind of like the wild, wild west for quarantining. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, it is true. <laughs> yeah. It, it sounds like it's optional sometimes. It is optional. Masks are optional, but at least <laughs> be outside a little bit more and spread out a little bit more. So, you know, that... That's nice, but um, but it certainly makes a difference. I've never been a fan of the winters, the cold, and the darkness, so this was a nice nice retreat and feel lucky that I have the ability to do this. Well, I'm glad you're staying safe down there. So, Josh, I'd like to open the show by asking my guest the following question. If you were asked to share something interesting about yourself, what would it be? Yeah, yeah, I thought about this one. It's a tough one. It's almost like a dating app. You've got to really define your personality in like one sentence, so it's a tough one to answer. Um, I thought the best way to answer this in the context of the show, a lot of people, including myself who come on here are really concerned about climate change. Um, I think maybe an interesting thing for me is that I don't think climate change is the biggest issue facing us right now. I think it's wealth distribution. And I say that I say wealth distribution specifically and not wealth inequality, because I think it's more encompassing of how wealth gets distributed. Because I think climate change, uh, I think we kind of know what we need to do in climate change. We have a lot of the solutions. We just have to align and execute. And I think that's more difficult when you've got wealth distribution problems, which to focus on the U.S. specifically, in my opinion, causes a lot of the political divide. You've got people who on one side think, for example, the wealthy are getting too big of a share. And on the other side are really pushing back against the socialism concept because they think that would distribute wealth from those who quote unquote earned it to those who haven't. And I think that's preventing us from executing a lot of the answers we have. So if we could solve that and get people more aligned, I think we could actually execute on solving the climate crisis a lot faster. You know, 
that is a very interesting uh, point of view. I'd like to stay with it for a moment. I feel I feel the same challenge too. If you had an opportunity to perhaps help solve wealth distribution, what are some of the ideas you have? Yeah, so that was my first interest. So rewinding back to college, trying to think about what I want to do with my career. And I was looking for a job that I believed in the overall purpose of it. And the first thing I was attracted to was trying to solve the wealth distribution problem and um, took a couple classes on it and learned about, for example, the Grameen Bank, which was in India, which was a pretty famous example of how to get micro lending to small communities. So I was on that path for probably a year. And then I just started to feel like I wasn't exactly sure what a career trying to solve that looked like. And even now, I mean, I haven't put much thought into it in the past since then, but it's hard for me to imagine what a career dedicated to solving wealth distribution looks like. It feels a bit more like an ancillary problem that people solve from outside as opposed to dedicating a career to it. Um, so I don't have a good answer. I mean, it feels like something that you know, people saw from the outside. So that actually caused me to pivot. And I also started just to notice that I was reading about energy. I was reading two newspapers a day and I was reading every single energy article I could I could get my hands on. So that's how I noticed I was just really interested in energy. And and then I made that switch. But it's definitely something that I kind of keep there and it motivates me politically. And hopefully at a certain point in the future can do something a little more proactive with that as well. I'm motivated by it too. And, you know, you spoke of Muhammad Yunus and the Grameen Bank. I've been a fan of theirs for years. I've been donating. Um, I say donating, I guess it's more like lending to Kiva.org yep. for about 12 years now on a consistent basis. And, um, you know, we support the local food bank quite a bit here. Recently, I've been very, very interested in weatherization. And I'm looking forward to seeing what the new administration puts out regarding tax credits and weatherization. Because I believe that going back to energy here, you know, if we can help more people specifically who are, you know, lower on the income rung, weatherize their homes or pay less towards from their wallet share towards utilities, then they can reallocate that money to other perhaps education, food, you know, whatever it might look like. But it's absolutely a topic that perhaps, you know, you and I can explore on another show because I am very, very interested in that too. Definitely. That'd be great. Yeah. I donated to Kiva. I actually forgot I had a Kiva account and they, they, they took my money this year because I was in active. <laughs> so I, I've officially donated to Kiva, the company itself. And uh, yeah, I've, I volunteer as well, and I'm, I'm definitely down to talk about it. I think there are things that people can do in their spare time, for sure, to, to address this problem. It's harder for me to think about how to commit a career to it. I, I agree. Maybe some kind of national commitment to an hour a week, whatever that looks like. That's you know, 150 million adults donating an hour a week. I'm sure that we can think, you know, think of a roadmap to solve the problem. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. So I'm going to switch gears here and ask you to give the audience an overview of the newly launched Nexus Development Capital, mouthful, aka Nexus DevCap, and your role at the organization. Yeah, definitely. Appreciate that. We're still uh, working through exactly how we want to call it, Nexus Dev, Nexus DevCap. So um, understand uh, we're, we're, we haven't landed on what we want to do yet, but I think it's what the exciting part is is that we've officially closed our raise, $20 million. We've been working on this for a couple months now. And it addresses a spot in the value chain that we think is underserved by, by other capital providers. So in a project development lifecycle, 
um, people need to spend money in order to get a project done. That could be to pay for uh, a land uh, purchase option on the land. That could be to negotiate feedstock contracts, to negotiate offtake agreements, to pay for engineers, to do some design work. And all that takes money. And a lot of developers don't have money. Or if they spend it, they run out of money. And then there's a gap. And a lot of traditional financing institutions don't want to spend money on development capital for reasons we get into later. But generally what happens is there's a bunch of projects that just can't get to be construction ready. Once you get to be construction ready, if you have a good project, there's a whole suite of capital providers out there who want to fund good projects. There's a wall of money out there right now. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to provide both the capital and the services to bridge that gap. And we're excited because we think we have a unique model. I, I think there's two real key things about this. One is that there's a partnership with Nexus PMG, uh, which we both work for and we think have great expertise being able to develop um, what I consider non-traditional renewable projects. So there's just a lot of knowledge across all the work streams I mentioned earlier, how to negotiate those contracts. We actually do a lot of design in-house, et cetera. And the other aspect is the financial structure that we set up to do this. So we're not a traditional fund. And I think one of the reasons people haven't done this is I think if you did a traditional two and 20 fund to try and invest in these types of projects, the financials just don't work. It doesn't make sense. You'd end up running into an issue which every other fund runs into, which is now you're more incentivized just to grow AUM as opposed to do good deals. So we were lucky enough to have a partner who was willing to do this bespoke structure with us that I think allows us to stay in this smaller end of the market and focus on these smaller check sizes and making sure we could do good deals down at this end. So you mentioned the partner. During the conversation with the partner, what enabled the partner to have the confidence to partner with us to you know, invest in the fund? It was a partner that we had a relationship with a while, so a lot of it was personal. And I think the experience in Nexus PMG helped. I think the broader theme that we're all interested in is doing good for the environment helped. Um, and so for them, it was more of a capital allocation decision, um, allocating a certain amount of capital to someone who they trust and who's doing good work, um, as opposed to kind of getting into the weeds and picking apart our business model. So there was a lot of trust involved there. You mentioned development capital. What would be the ideal scenario from an investment standpoint and from a developer standpoint that wants to approach you for perhaps an investment? Yeah, so our investment spectrum is we're looking to deploy at the moment um, less than $4 million per deal, um, short-term deals. So we're looking to deploy into mid or late stage development projects where we could see getting our money back within two years. Um, it's got to be within what we call resource efficient infrastructure, just stuff that's good for the planet. And for the time being, generally focused on the US and Canada. Now, there could be exceptions, you know, maybe we'll, we'll do something else, but that's what we're focused on in the beginning. And and then so for a developer, what, what does mid or late stage development mean? It really is very project specific. Um, so, for example, in some sectors, we would require a developer to already have an offtake if they come to us in, a, in an area that's not um, highly developed, we'll say, in kind of bespoke end product markets. 
um, where we don't have that much confidence in what the end market looks like, we would require uh, an offtake. Or another example, biomass to power, which is a developed market, but we would need to see a PPA in place to do biomass to power. Versus other examples like uh, cow manure to AD, sorry, AD using um, cow manure to renewable natural gas with very low CI scores. We're not as concerned about getting an offtake in that market. We know that they're there. And so each project is specific. So I'd say um, check out our website, nexusdevcap.com. And we kind of list, uh, there's a questionnaire on there where you can fill out where you stand across all the vectors of a project development. And that gets sent to us and we could have a conversation. And I'll absolutely put a link to the website in the show notes. What kind of technologies, if any, are you looking to invest in if there are any specific ones? Or if not, you know, what are some of the more popular technologies that you're ready to invest in? Yeah, so we did, we want proven technologies. So we're not a venture investor. Um, we're looking for things that have been commercially proven. And so at minimum, we're looking for technologies that have a demo plant completed or ideally commercial facility completed. Now, there's even nuance in that. I mean, sometimes there are applications of a variety of different pieces of equipment that have never been assembled in a certain way, and that's okay with us if it's okay with our technical team. Um, but we're not looking to kind of fund new technologies that have never been proven before in our more venture stage. Um, that being said, most of our pipeline is in anaerobic digestion, wood pellets, uh, and various forms of biofuels. Got it. Now, earlier, you, I think you alluded to competition. Why haven't we seen more competition in this segment of development capital? Yeah, that's the ultimate question. Um, I, you know, I have a thesis on this, but want to be careful because understand that we haven't actually executed and succeeded yet. So we're wading into territory that, that there's an obvious need for that other people aren't doing. And so there's a reason other people aren't doing it. So you know, we're very aware that we might trip ourselves. But if you talk to a lot of developers and investors, there's no question that there's a need for this type of capital. I mean, in the very few conversations we've had, um, almost everyone says developers and investors say there's a need for this. So why aren't they doing it? I think I think it goes back to that the two kind of differentiators I think we've got in our structure. And so, you know, I mentioned that the three highest technology categories in our pipeline are are biogas, biofuels, and wood pellets. Those are all, you know, bespoke technologies. They're not they're not solar, they're not pipelines, that they're not things that people have put billions of dollars in. They're all a little bit unique. So I think for other investment firms to really understand a biofuel deal, for example, it takes a lot of work. They have to find the right people. Um, that's not easy. They might not have them fully on staff. Um, and then the dollars are, are pretty small. So it takes a lot of work. So a lot of the funds will end up looking to deploy capital in spaces that are more repeatable, programmatic, however you want to say it. Um, I think our ability to carve out this niche of off-the-run technologies, which I think won't be off-the-run for much longer. I don't know if they'll ever get to solar scale. I don't think they will. But I think there'll be a lot of growth ahead of them. Um, our ability to have a have Nexus PMG expertise on staff that we can tap into it, and then B have the financial structure, which is not a standard two and twenty fund, which allows us to 
uh, focus on doing deals and not have as much deployment pressure as we otherwise would have if we were doing a two and twenty fund. That's the thesis for for why we might be able to set this up. Well, it sounds very interesting. You've been on this energy journey for a while now. Broadly speaking, macro viewpoint, how have you seen interest or how have you seen the landscape in energy change? And then how have you seen the changes towards you know, renewable energy? Yeah, um, there's definitely more people involved, even just you know the last eight months has really taken off. I started my career um, when I graduated college, I joined GE and then was doing M&A in the power business for a while uh, across all power generation technologies, not just renewable. Um, but even there, you know, we had a, and we had a solar business. One of the first deals I worked on was selling that to First Solar. It was just a bunch of IP really at the time. Um, and it was still kind of a sideshow at GE just because gas made so much money for the company at that point. But obviously the ties were shifting and you know, people like First Solar were up and coming. And obviously people were talking about Tesla and what have you. Um, Vestas, I mean, GE, GE did make a great purchase of their wind business. They came out of the Enron bankruptcy well before I joined. And just slowly over time, and that was a company that was entrenched in kind of traditional fuels, but slowly over time, people were just figuring out how to play in renewables. It was challenging because it was hard to make money. Um, in GE, the gas business made so much money from the service contracts and you don't have lucrative service contracts, certainly in solar and, and not as much in wind. And so that the company just struggled to figure out how to do it. I was lucky enough that I was able to focus a lot of my time on solar and storage. I, we tried to sell our battery technology to Tesla. It was a sodium nickel chloride technology that, uh, no one really wanted, um, spent a lot of time looking at some of these companies that have recently gone public in SPACs like EVgo and STEM. And uh, when I would go to these battery conferences, maybe that was 2013 or something, uh, there was hardly anyone there, but there were still more conferences than projects. That was kind of the joke. People would go to conferences and talk about projects and there just were no projects because costs were still high because re regulatory frameworks were still um, difficult to promote not aligned to promote kind of storage deployments. So all that certainly changed. I mean, I'm not as close to it anymore in the spot I sit in, but certainly the storage attachment rates have gone through the roof. Uh, storage costs have come down dramatically. Even when I joined GE and they bought the sodium nickel chloride, I think lithium ion was somewhere around $2,000 a kilowatt hour, which is now whatever, 150 or something. Um, so just the cost declines have been incredible. And I think that a number of people who are just interested in the space just continues to grow and be fascinating. And I think it's this incredible, uh, almost juxtaposition that like you can be in renewables and working every day in renewables and there's so many smart people and, and feel like there's all these smart people in the challenge, but also recognize that we're just at the beginning of this journey and there's multiples more people coming in, it feels like, all the time. It's very interesting. And I agree with you that I feel too that we're at the beginning of this journey. So I'm going to switch here to the crux of our conversation, the why behind what you do. You know, we started off this conversation talking about income disparities, and you've been involved in energy now for 10, 12 years, I believe. What keeps you motivated? What continues to drive you? Yeah. Um, so I started my career really focused on like trying to get a job 
in a sector I believed in, whether it was wealth distribution or whether it was climate change. And then I was, I was working, um, you know, eventually I got the, my dream job doing M&A at GE and, and that stuff. And I was just thrilled. And then eventually after time, you started to realize that, well, my day to day, while it might've been an energy was not necessarily that fact alone was not necessarily fulfilling enough that you needed to have a job needed to provide the other things that matter, you know, whether that's pay you enough and whether it's uh, working with people you would like working with and whether you like the people you're working with and whether you have kind of flexibility and whatnot. Um, so I was applying to business school around at the time and I ended up doing that for like two years and you have to write, what do you want to do in five years and 10 years? So I spent, you know, two years weekends for two years of my life trying to figure out what I want to do. And I eventually just gave up because I don't know if there's a right answer to that. And I've just, I got used to accepting that there's not a right answer. What do I want to do? And I rather accepted the answer of here's the criteria that I want in my life and I want in a job. And, and does this satisfy those criteria? And if not, you know, reevaluate my criteria, reevaluate the job. So that was a long way of saying, I can't answer the question. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like you did give a few answers there in the middle. Let me ask you another question then. You seem to be a very introspective fellow. What are some of the most valuable lessons that uh, you've learned about yourself on your journey? Oh, learned about myself. Um, one event that was the most impactful for me was having a job offer revoked from energy impact partners. I had an official offer there five, six years ago and continued to negotiate what I thought were pretty minor points. And they ended up revoking it. And I later learned that it was just, I came off as too brash. Um, and I think the same thing happened in my business school applications came off as a bit too brash. And so I think learning that, uh, I came off that way and needed to be a little bit more understanding in my approach. That was certainly a lesson. That was one of the biggest lessons I had to learn early on. That really is an interesting lesson. How did you change your approach? Um, I don't know how conscious it was. I just look back to the way I operated 10 years ago and can certainly see what others saw in me then. Um, so maybe just the rejections had an automatic <laughs> impact on me. Um, you know, one thing maybe related to this issue is just getting a real understanding for I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, I had a memory my senior year of college where, people, you know, elders will say, you know, young people always think they know what they're talking about. And I remember thinking, I feel like I'm at that age where I think I know what I'm talking about. Um <laughs> truly understanding that I didn't really know what I was talking about. You know, you can maybe you can be a very analytical person, a smart person, but it doesn't necessarily mean you know what you're talking about. And just being kind of conscious in that and maybe more deferential to seniors and more deferential to elders. Well, again, sounds like a lot of introspection. So I'm going to go back to Nexus DevCap, the placeholder name for now, and ask, you know, perfect scenario, magic wand, 10 years from now, so 2031. What does Nexus DevCap look like to you? Yes, yeah, so this is actually a perfect example of why uh, I don't know. Um, I could actually name some potential outcomes 
but I think they would all be great. Um, one of which is the reason that we size the raise the way we sized it is because there's a world where uh, we recycle the capital and don't need to raise anymore. And so we deploy the full amount, we get it back in one to two years, we deploy that amount and just keep doing it. And maybe we want to stay in the sector that we're in. I mean, but we can't get too big. If we want to maintain the ability to do $500,000 deals, we can't be a $200 million asset manager. And so maybe we just use the capital to do other things, whatever that may be. Um, another success story would be we start to maintain some small equity pieces in some deals, um, which we would probably do anyway, depending on the structure. And uh, maybe we need to deploy faster and raise more capital. And so then we go out for a raise and we raise more. Some of these projects, maybe they, we do some of the bigger projects or so maybe graduate from the less than $4 million and do development capital deals for $10 million. And so raise more money to do that. Maybe we graduate and actually start to develop and own projects ourselves in the future. That's not the plan right now, but uh, maybe it is in the future. So I think all of those are possibilities. Um, and kind of going back to my theory of, I guess, my own career and maybe how it applies here. I think we set this up in a way that maintained flexibility that we could pursue all of those. And so what we're going to be focused on for the next two years is just executing the plan that we kind of laid out, but we're open to other successful paths. Well, it sounds like a world of opportunities and possibilities. And I look forward to working with you to bring that vision to fruition. Last question I have is, if you could share some advice or words of wisdom with the audience, and it could be professional or personal, what would it be? Yeah, I've never really liked giving advice because I think advice is everyone's own personal experience that they just project onto someone else. And so if I were to give a specific piece of advice, it's really me thinking back through you know, my successes and my failures and assuming that that applies to other people. So I've struggled with that question too. I think the, the one the one that I like the most is to enjoy the journey because I think that's probably applicable, you know, regardless of anyone's individual experiences. So who knows how this journey ends, but um, I think it's important to enjoy it as we go. Cause I think it's certainly true. A lot of people um, might end up have a mentality of I'll be happy when, you know, I'll be happy when we do this raise or I'll be happy when I have a family or I'll be happy when whatever your determination of success is. And then you get there and it's not as satisfying as you thought it was. So um, I think enjoying the journey is, is a helpful one. I love enjoying the journey. I think um, it's reminiscent of the hedonic treadmill, what you spoke about. And I think part of that enjoying the journey is, you know, being present in the now. And I really appreciate your time today. And I look forward to perhaps getting back with you on a part two or three even to further discuss, you know, perhaps some solutions for the uh wealth distribution problem we started the show with. That'd be great. Look forward to that. Josh, I appreciate your time and look forward to catching up with you again soon. Thanks, Raj. Same. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website nexuspmg.com and while you're there you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech 
green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.